You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing shocking and monitoring dental unit water lines. Our guest is Leanne Kiefer, an expert in the field of infection control and a noted international speaker and dental hygienist. She serves on various foundation and publication boards in the U.S. and Canada and is on the editorial review board for OSAP. Leanne is currently the director of education for Crostex International. Leanne, it's a pleasure to have you back on Dental Talk. Phil, it's always such a pleasure to be here and, and be able to work with our, our colleagues. Yeah, so you've done really well with your previous podcasts. You've had some great uh, numbers as far as engagement, so let's keep that great work up. And we're excited to have you talk about important critical issues when it comes to maintaining the water lines in the dental practice. Let's begin by talking about shocking dental unit water lines. Tell us what that is and how does that process actually work? When dental lines develop biofilm, uh, biofilm obviously is a very adherent, you know, lipopolysaccharide type of a slime layer that continues to build and build. Phil, I was, I read a, a recent article that said biofilm can get up to 75 layers thick, you know, which is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And so this is very difficult to eradicate. And so depending upon the type of dental unit treatment product you're using, best practice is always to start with a clean line, which would require a shocking protocol. What that means is at the end of a day, you know, we were going to empty out the lines and then we're going to fill the reservoir bottles with your selected shock product. It is a chemical product. You would then bleed through the lines with the air water syringe and the hoses until you see the color of the product that you're using, um, you know, coming out of the end of the line so that you know you have, quote unquote, filled the lines with the product. Then again, depending upon the product you're using, the protocol for an initial shock may require multiple nights. So you have to think ahead when you're going to do this because if it requires, say, three nights of shocking, you don't want to start it on a Friday night because you'd need to be able to do it, you know, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because you have to empty that product out within a 24-hour period. So that's why you have to plan ahead. And those products will then, some products have claims to, there's, there's one product that has the claim to kill and remove biofilm. So always check what the claims for the product are so that you know exactly what to expect with the outcome. Yeah, so this is different than monitoring, uh, obviously, because monitoring, is you're checking to see how your water is doing. But the shocking, um, is that something you do one time or you do this on a regular basis? Again, Phil, we always say, first of all, read your manufacturer's instructions for use. So that means your dental chair manufacturer. And then you also have to read your treatment product that you're using to treat your dental unit water lines. So you could be using um, a tablet product or you could be using a liquid product um, or you could be using one of the automated devices, one of the cartridges. And at that point, each one of them may have a different recommendation as to how their product has been validated. But my, my best practice, you know, best way to step off on a great foot is before you start a new treatment or If an office hasn't been doing treatment or if they've been inconsistent with their treatment, you know, you know that there's going to be biofilm buildup in there. So give your product the best chance by clearing the lines first with a shock. And then you may have a treatment protocol that says you need to shock 
monthly or you need to shock quarterly to be in compliance with your IFUs. So, or you may not have to shock at all depending upon the product you're using. So what does it mean to monitor dental treatment water and why should an office perform this protocol? Monitoring is a hot topic right now, Phil, in dental unit water lines, because obviously we all know about the issues that happened in both Georgia and California. And, you know, we had counts at almost 100,000 CFUs per milliliter in some of those lines when those children became ill with the NTM, the mycobacterium. And so we have to make sure that we're in compliance with the CDC and the ADA guidelines that say we need to keep our dental unit water lines under 500 CFUs or colony forming units per milliliter. And that traces way back to our whole chain of infection that we know if, you know, we have to have a pathogen to cause disease. But if we don't have enough of the pathogen to cause disease of the bug, then somebody's not, the disease isn't going to be transmitted. And so that sweet spot is that 500 CFUs or less, because then it's not going to be causing disease in patients with the water that's being treated. So we're ethically treating our patients safely. Yeah, which is the most important thing. What type of dental waterline testing is available to the dentist? Um, and are there differences between them? Sure. There's, you know, um, just like we have, but think back to biological monitoring back in the early 80s, Phil, you know, when we had like a third of the offices that were doing it. And now, you know, move forward to 2019, and basically every, we hope to say every dental office do, is doing biological monitoring. You have the same choice in that you can mail out a test of your water sample to a laboratory that will perform the testing, do the counts, and give you a report. You can also opt for um, some in-office methods, but I'll tell you that um, a number of the key opinion leaders um, John Molinari in his uh, lectures refers to in-office monitoring more of a screening device because it's not quite as definitive and it doesn't use the same type of laboratory method, um, sort of the gold standard method that's used in laboratories. So I think the office has to look at what they're trying to test, you know, how compliant have they been, and which one or which combination of both of those options are going to work best for them. CDC does not specify one or the other. And actually, CDC says follow your dental unit manufacturers or your treatment manufacturer's recommendation for monitoring. It's not a specific standard yet. Okay. It's coming. Okay, so that's good to know. Um, and let's talk about some of the mistakes that offices might make when obtaining a water sample when they're testing their water. <laughs> Could you give us some examples of that? I have my number one favorite, Phil. And I'm, it's people need to remember that, you know, if they're going to be doing monitoring, they need to flush the lines, flush all the lines for two minutes before you take your water sample. Because if the water's been stagnant in those lines, treated or not, you know, the, the water in there is not sterile. The biofilm is there. So you want to get fresh water in or freshly treated water if you're using an automated device so that you're getting a more accurate count. The other thing that I would say is basic hand hygiene. You know, wash your hands, wear gloves before you do your sampling protocol, whether it's mail-in or whether it's in-office. And you also want to remove any of the dynamic instruments, like remove the hand pieces, remove the air water syringe tip, because you don't want any cross-contamination. So, you know, put on a new disposable air water syringe tip. You know, use the appropriate surface disinfection where you're going to be touching so that you're not adding 
other microorganisms from your hand or from the outside of the of the items. So beyond the flushing, the other thing I would recommend is if you're doing mail-in testing, realize that there is a neutralizing agent that's placed at the bottom of the test tubes where you're going to be placing the sample. And you want to just sort of flow the water sample, trickle it down the side of the, the test tube. Don't shoot it down there because that, that force of that spray could disrupt the neutralizing agent and could throw off the count. Um, the other hint I would say is if you are doing a mail-in service, don't leave the test tubes open any longer than necessary because you don't want any of the bacteria that's in the air in the environment to fall into the tube. So basically open the tube, fill it to the appropriate level, whether it's you know two-thirds, three-quarters, depending upon who you're using, and then recap. That's a great uh, tip because I could imagine uh, somebody sending the sample away and having to come back with all sorts of uh, splatter that's inside the tube coming from the environment, which, which is not really coming from the water. That would cause all sorts of problems. Um, the other thing you, you thought made me think of something, Phil, is they also should not be doing what we fondly refer to as a community sample, meaning they take one test tube into a treatment room and they fill it from four different hoses, you know, 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. And what if they have a number that comes back higher than 500 CFUs? How do they know which line it was? They don't. Good point. Good point. So you don't want to aggregate your water. You don't want to merge it into one tube. You just need to do it. each individual operatory should be done into separately. Is that what you're yes. recommending? Yeah. Which makes and sense. each line separately. You know, say this is the handpiece line. This is the air water syringe line on the assistant side, so that you know exactly where everything is. Right. So you, I assume these testing companies that where you mail away have labels that say operatory. Uh, equipment. They do have labels available, Phil, and you just, you know, put them on like you would on any test tube. But the other important thing, just like planning for the shocking that we talked about earlier, you need to plan for the monitoring when you're mailing it away because there's a, a gel freezer kit that comes with it because you have to keep those samples on ice. You don't want them to be in a warm, dark environment as they're being shipped overnight. So you have to give time for that freezer pack to become frozen. Okay, so they take the water sample, put it into the uh, mailer, send it off, and then they get the news that their water is not up to par. 500 is a sweet spot, Phil. And so if, you know, if they're coming back at 501, that's a lot different than coming back at 5,000, right? <laughs> you know, and so, you know, there, there is some interpretation, but you can't say, oh, it's only 1,000, I'm not going to worry about it. Your next action was, is going to be, if you have a line that comes back above the compliance limit, the basic thing is you've got to go through a shocking protocol because you need to treat the biofilm that's in the line. And what about documenting the results? Is that something that a dental office should do or if they fail or even if they pass? Obviously, you want to say what the results are and put them somewhere. Great question, Phil. And again, that's one of the reasons many, many offices opt to use a third-party professional laboratory service, because keeping all those records in a database is part of the service that's offered to you, so that you don't have to worry about tracking down, you know, you've got them, they're online, they're available anytime. If you do in office, then yes, you are going to be required to keep a log with your results of those in-office tests. And, you know, as always, if it's, you know, if, if, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And so they need to include the date, the operatory, and then which lines in the operatory and what the, the results were 
and then what actions were taken. And their waterline protocol should be part of their infection control manual. You know, what is their step-by-step -step if they have a failure? If you don't write it down and somebody new comes into the office, how do they know what the standard protocol is? Right. Okay. So that's got to be documented. And of course, in today's day and age, you know, with the lawyers out there, and um, I'm not saying anything bad about lawyers, but they do tend to cause havoc when the lawsuit comes in and then you have to defend yourself and you don't have the right documentation. Because like you said, if it's not written down, then it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we certainly want to have the offices prepared for those unlikely events that, you know, they would be sued by somebody. But God forbid, if a patient did get ill after a dental office visit and they presume that it was possibly waterline contamination, but maybe they went to another office or drank something somewhere else or, you know, before they came in the office or whatever, you, you really need that documentation to protect yourself. Absolutely. And it should be an ink fill. If you wrote a wrong number down, just put a single line through it, date it and initial it. You know, don't scribble it out. Don't put white out over it. Try and keep your documentation as neat and clear as possible. Or they may have um, online, they may have downloadable logs that a lot that you can keep and then just keep them in a, a binder. And what I recommend to people is if you are doing a handwritten document for any type of um, protocols, when you get to the end of the year or every quarter, why not scan them and then upload them to the cloud or put them on a hard drive so that you have them, you know, God forbid there's a fire in the office. You want to make sure that you have those records and they're not just paper documents. Well, that's a very good, that's a very good suggestion. And that's with anything, backing up anything. If you have written material you, you never it, it could be lost it could be destroyed natural disasters floods whatever so uh, i'm sure there were a lot of dental offices in houston not that long ago that were flooded out that lost a lot of documentation so it would be good if they absolutely had, yeah if they had this stuff on the cloud all right well um great information leanne we really appreciate your time with this podcast um we know you are scheduled to do a few more coming up which is really exciting you're going to be doing something on management of patient fear and anxiety. And you're going to be talking about nitrous oxide and uh, nitrous oxide oxygen sedation, which is uh, in your wheelhouse now because Crosstex International works with uh, Accutron's products, right? Which We purchased Accutron, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so an exciting thing to be able to make our patients more comfortable and also make it easier for clinicians to practice. Yeah. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah. So yeah, we're definitely, if you haven't uh, listened to that, that's going to be done shortly and then we'll have it up on vivalearning.com and all the other uh, podcast platforms that we connect to itunes stitcher and google Podcasts. so again leanne thanks very much for your time and uh, we're looking forward to your next one soon hey phil and we always say keep it clean with shocking and monitoring <laughs>